Luke 17, beginning at verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Well, do keep that open, and um, inside your service sheet is an outline of where we're going in the next few minutes. And you'll see there inside, I've put, uh, to start off with, a dictionary definition of the term game changer, which I'm sure you've come across before. Uh, But it says there, it's originally from the US, so it's firstly a player, who or a tactic, goal, etc., which decisively affects the outcome of a game. And then secondly, an extended use, an event, idea, or procedure that produces a significant shift in the current way of thinking about or doing something. So basically, a game changer is something so big, so impactful, that it changes the landscape. Brexit has been described as a game-changer in the UK economic and political landscape. The appointment of Big Sam Allardyce as the next England manager will hopefully be a game-changer for English football. Uh, The launch this month of Pokemon Go has been billed as a game-changer in the world of augmented reality, and within six days it had more than 100 million global users, and some of them were practically bumping into me before the service on the quayside as they're wandering around doing this and stuff. Recently, um, 41-year-old Maria De Rosa from North London uh, was told by doctors she's only got months to live. So this diagnosis of terminal bowel cancer has been a game-changer for her and her family. Last week... She got married to her partner of 10 years, uh, as a partner of 10 years standing, who she's been with for 10 years. And she says all she wants to do now is to go to Disney World in Florida with her two young sons. But you might say, well, you know, none of these things is a game changer for me. Uh, you might say, well, you know, I'm not into politics, I'm not into football, I'm certainly not into augmented reality. Uh, you know, and I'm really sorry for Maria, her situation, but, you know, I'm fit and healthy, thank goodness. 
And so the question is, is there a game changer which is so big that it really will affect every single one of us? The Bible says there is, and it is the return of Jesus Christ. Something so big, so impactful, that it will change the landscape for all of us, whoever we are this evening. The Bible says Jesus Christ is going to return. And when he does, it will affect every single one of us. When he returns, it will be the end of this world as we know it. It will bring judgment on this world, but salvation for those who trust in Christ. And he will bring in the eternal kingdom of God. It will be the ultimate game changer. And it should be, it should be a game changer even now in our lives. So knowing that that's going to happen, and it could happen any time, if we live in the light of his promised return, it will shape our lives and our priorities. And it puts everything in our lives into perspective. The worries about work that so often consume us and threaten to overwhelm us. The concerns about home life, about personal life, which keep us awake at night. The relationship difficulties that can be so painful. The things in the diary or the calendar, which at the moment are leaving a stone in your stomach. Knowing that Christ is going to return doesn't sort of make these things magically disappear. But it does put them in perspective. And it gives us, if you like, a place to stand from which we can view these things in a different light. But it may well be that for many of us, the, uh, the return of Christ is not the game changer in our lives today that it should be. And that may be because at the moment you just don't believe it's going to happen. Or it may be that you do believe it's going to happen, but it's just not quite on the radar as much as it should be in our thinking and in our living. Well, whatever our condition, uh, we do well to pay attention to the teaching of Jesus here about his return in Luke 17, 20 to 37, as we begin this new summer series um, in this section of Luke's Gospel. If you've got the, the passage open there on page uh, 1056, you'll see in verse 20 that the catalyst for Jesus' teaching about his return was a question from the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of the day, a question about the kingdom of God. So they basically wanted to know when the kingdom of God was going to come. So verse 20, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. God's kingdom was his rule. The Old Testament foretold that one day God's rule would be established everywhere. God's enemies would be destroyed, God's people would be saved, and they would live, him, they would live with God in a world made new forever. No more evil, no more suffering, no more death. Now, these religious leaders, they looked forward to that. They wanted that. And so they asked Jesus what the timetable was going to be and when it was going to happen. It is what all of us want, isn't it, deep down? A better world. It's something that uh, Donald Trump seems to have tapped into and is cashing in on at the moment. He promises the better world that we all long for. At least he promises it for those who live in the world of the United States. So he told the Republican Party convention this past week, the crime and the violence that afflicts our nation today will soon come to an end. He went on to say we will lead our country back to safety, prosperity and peace. Well, that is the world we all want, isn't it? 
But it's a world that ultimately Trump can't deliver. Only God can deliver. And he will do that when his kingdom comes. But when will it come? See, that is the question. And Jesus' reply seems a little bit odd, doesn't it? So, rather than Jesus talking about a future coming of the kingdom, Jesus says to the Pharisees, it's already here. So, verse 20, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, why does he say that? Why does he tell the Pharisees that the kingdom is already here? But then in verse 22 onwards, when he's speaking to his disciples, he does talk about the coming of the kingdom in the future. And that's the stuff the Pharisees wanted to know about, the future stuff. So why wasn't Jesus playing ball? Well, the reason is this. The Pharisees needed to recognize, first of all, that the kingdom was standing right in front of them. When Jesus says in verse 21, Behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, he means that they didn't need to go searching for the kingdom because it was right under their noses. The kingdom was present in the person of Jesus, the king. And that was the problem. That these people were all for the kingdom. They wanted the world sorting out. They wanted God's rule to come. But what they didn't want was Jesus. They wanted the kingdom, but not the king. They assumed that they were going to be part of the kingdom, even though they didn't acknowledge the king. But it doesn't work like that. The two go together. Jesus is the king of the eternal kingdom of God. And you can't have the one without the other. You can't have the kingdom without the king, this king. You can't enter the kingdom without receiving Jesus as king. God's rule will be enjoyed by those who receive God's ruler. Do you long for a new world? Do you want to be part of that new world? That's a good longing to have. It's a right longing to have. But this new world will be brought in and will be ruled over by this king that God has appointed the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if we want to be part of that, we need to recognize him and we need to receive him. Plenty of people in our world today, I guess, suspect that Donald Trump is not going to bring in this new world. And in fact, no politician can deliver that. Plenty of people know that only God can actually do that. And they long for him to do it. And they assume that they will be part of it. So plenty of people assume that they will go to heaven or however they use it, whatever terms they they might use. Because they say, I believe in God. I'm trying to live a good life. Just like the Pharisees were. But Jesus is warning here that the kingdom is for those who receive him as the king. And he's telling us that the first thing we need to do is to recognize who is standing in front of us in the person of Christ. I'm sure you'll have noticed that um, British people talk an awful lot about the weather. Uh, It's a bit of a a national obsession. And the BBC did a piece on this last year, and um, there was this research study in which 94% of the respondents, British respondents, admitted that they had talked about the weather in the past six hours. And 38% said that they talked about the weather in the past hour. Now, a social anthropologist who was doing this study, a woman called Kate Fox, she commented, she, commented, she said, um, this means that at almost any moment in this country, 
at least a third of the population is either talking about the weather, has already done so, or is about to do so. (laughs) Now, it's not just the Brits. It seems that the people of Jesus' day were also pretty keen on talking about the weather. And in those days, they didn't have a daily weather forecast on the news. They were experts at doing the forecasting themselves. They could read the signs. And so if you turn back a few pages to Luke chapter 12... Luke chapter 12, verse 54. Jesus said to the crowds, he said, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there'll be scorching heat. And it happens. So you see, they were very good at reading the signs when it came to the weather. But when it came to Jesus, it seems that they were unable or unwilling to join up the dots. So verse 56, he goes on to say, You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Just before um, our passage in chapter 17, just before the Pharisees asked about the coming kingdom, Jesus had just healed ten lepers. So with a bare word, with a bare command, Jesus had completely healed ten people who had leprosy. The signs were all there. Jesus was claiming to be the king of God's eternal kingdom. He was doing things that only the ruler of God's eternal kingdom could do. If people could work out the weather from the signs, they should have been able to work out who Jesus was from the signs. I mean, it's not very demanding. It's not like sort of clue quest or hint hunt. It's not sort of cryptic crossword territory. It's not rocket science. And yet the Pharisees couldn't see it, or they wouldn't see it. They refuse to join up the dots. And the point is that we need to beware being like them. In Jesus, the King has come. And if we want to enjoy life in the new world, in the eternal kingdom of God, we need to come to Jesus. And so if you haven't done that yet, do take a closer look at him. Take away from the red table on the way out one of the gospel accounts for free. Have a read. Why not meet up with a Christian friend to talk about what you've been reading or Uh, Meet up with one of the barge staff. We'd love to do that with you. Why not sign up for the Christianity Explored course that many people here have done and which gives you a chance to take a closer look at Jesus. But in verse 22, so we're back in chapter 17 now. In verse 22, Jesus turns from the Pharisees to his disciples and to these people who do accept him as king, he does teach about the kingdom which was to come at his return. And he gives us some do's and he gives us some don'ts. Firstly, a do. Do keep longing for Christ's return. So verse 22, he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. One of the hallmarks Jesus is saying there of the disciple of him is that they long for Christ to return. But he's saying they need to persevere because it won't come as soon as they might wish. In his speech last week, accepting the Republican nomination, Trump was painting a very dark picture of America. You could very well do the same on a global scale, couldn't you? And you could paint a pretty dark picture of our world today. And as time goes on, although technology makes our lives that little bit easier, the darkness in the world, spiritually, morally, 
only seems to be getting worse. It's getting darker. And in many countries, of course, for Christians, the situation is going from bad to worse. The daily prayer of the Christian is there in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. And it will come. But maybe not as soon as we would wish. And so Jesus is saying we need to keep going in faith and not give up. And we need to keep making the most of these days of gospel opportunity. Secondly, a don't. Don't be deceived. Verse 23, they'll say to you, look there or look here. Don't go out or follow them. For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Jesus is warning here that um, people will claim that he has come when he hasn't come. Uh, He says there'll be no mistaking when he does return. It will be unmistakable, unmissable. He uses the the comparison of lightning covering the, the whole sky, something that will be seen by everyone. And so he says we mustn't be taken in by those who claim that he's already come, despite the fact that the world is just continuing as it always has. Now, does anybody actually claim this, that Jesus has already come? Well, uh, the JWs, Jehovah's Witnesses for starters, uh, who maybe appear on your doorstep, uh, they predicted that Jesus would return in 1914. And the date came, and it went, and Jesus had obviously not returned. And so then they said, oh, well, he came spiritually. And so that's how they interpret that. He's already come in a spiritual sense. There are Christians who believe that uh, the coming of Jesus, his second coming, was actually fulfilled in the events of AD 70 and the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem by the Romans. And they say there's no future return, there's no second coming now that we're waiting for. That was back in AD 70. Um, It's what's called the extreme preterist position, if you're interested in that sort of thing. In fact, just this past week, I was speaking to someone at the lunchtime talks who uh, who firmly believes this. Others claim that the coming of Jesus uh, was fulfilled in the coming of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Clearly, the coming of the Spirit was very significant in the history of the church. But the Spirit is described as being a foretaste and a down payment of what is still to come in the future when Jesus returns in person. Then you've got what's called the prosperity gospel, which operates as if the kingdom has already come in its fullness. So the prosperity gospel teaches that you can enjoy now perfect health and wealth and prosperity. Things that the Bible says will be part of life in the coming kingdom, but not now. For now we live, if you like, in this overlap of the ages. The kingdom has begun with the first coming of Jesus, but it will only be fully revealed at his return. Don't be fooled, Jesus says. He is going to return, and when he does return it will be unmistakable and obvious to everyone, be a, a, a truly global event, which brings us to our next do, which is, do be ready. Verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. In many ways, the days of Noah were very different, wasn't it, weren't they, to today, the world of now, very different to the world of today. Uh, No cars, no planes, no mobiles, 
No Pokemon Goes? I mean, how did they cope? No computers, no TV? Some ways very different. In other ways, though, the basics of everyday life were just the same. It says here, eating, drinking, marrying. The focus of those three things seems to be on celebration. So, you know, life in full swing was great. And that went on right up until the day that destruction came in the form of the flood. And Jesus is saying it will be the same when he returns. Normal life, celebration, great stuff will be going on in full swing, and then suddenly destruction will come. The other example he gives, you see the same pattern with God's judgment on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in the days of Lot. And that was our first reading uh, from Genesis. So verse 28 here, he says, Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So he's saying that people will be busy with life. They'll be absorbed in in work and the cares of this world, little thought for God, and then suddenly the end will come, bringing destruction. Jesus is warning us. We don't know when he will come back. When he does come back, it will be too late to get ready then. We need to be ready now. We need to be ready all the time, living lives of obedient faith in him. Even as we go about the business of everyday life. I guess we should be a bit like a doctor who's on call, getting on with life, but ready for the call when it comes. I love the story, and I've uh, told it here before, of the explorer Ernest Shackleton. He was on his Antarctic expedition. His ship, the Endurance, got trapped in the ice, was crushed by the ice, it sank. And he and his men ended up stranded on this really, really remote island called Elephant Island. And Shackleton, who was the leader of the group, and he was known by his men as the boss, together with five others, he set off in a small open boat to go and get help, to go and get rescue. And so off they went, across some of the most dangerous waters in the world, in this little open boat, and they headed for the island of South Georgia, which was some 800 miles away. Those who were left behind on Elephant Island, waiting for rescue to come, were led by a man called Wild. And later in his journal, uh, Shackleton wrote, in his account of the expedition, he said this, From a fortnight after I had left, Wilde had rolled up his sleeping bag every day with this remark. Get your things ready, boys. The boss may come today. And sure enough, one day the mist opened and revealed the ship for which they had been waiting for four months. Well, those words of Wilde capture something of the expectancy you find in the New Testament that we should have as we wait for Christ's return. Get your things ready, boys and girls. The boss may come today. That is the sense of expectancy we should have. What we mustn't do is to get caught out. And this is our next point, the next don't. Don't get caught out, as Lot's wife was. What's the common denominator of the people who are not ready in these next verses, verses 31 to 33? Well, basically the common denominator is this, that they are worldly. They're too tied to this world. They're absorbed in the things of this world. They're living as if this world were all there was. So there on verse 31, if you see it says, on that day, let the one who is on his housetop 
So they had flat roofs in those days with his goods in the house, not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who's in the field not turn back. So he's saying that at the moment of his return, to try to go back and get your possessions would show that you've got a wrong perspective. You are too tied to the things of this world. It'd be a bit like, imagine going home this evening after church and you go home and you find your house or your flat is engulfed in flames. And you sort of rush in to rescue your television or your beloved kitchen aid, or whatever it is. It just it betray a wrong perspective. You think, what are you doing? It's crazy. The right perspective was something that Lot's wife clearly didn't have. Verse 32 just says very soberly, remember Lot's wife. We heard in our first reading, didn't we, that she fled from Sodom with her husband Lot. But then as they were fleeing, she stopped and she turned to look back and she was caught up in the destruction that fell. It was as if she couldn't quite bring herself to leave. She'd fled the city, but she'd left her heart behind in the city. Jesus is warning us that we need to beware being worldly believers, having, if you like, a foot in both camps, professing faith in Christ, but really in our hearts, in love with this present world and its values and everything it's got to offer. Jesus warns there as he sums up in verse 33, whoever seeks to preserve his life, that is to say just living for the now, will lose it, that is lose it eternally. But whoever loses his life, that is by living for Christ, not just living for this world, will keep it, that is keep it eternally. Lot was a godly man, wasn't he? Lot was a man of faith and he was saved in the end and his wife was part of that godly household. You had this godly husband. But in the end, she proved that she didn't have this personal faith herself. She didn't share that. Now, it's good to be part of a believing community like the one here on the barge. But that is no guarantee of personal faith and obedience. And so the point is, don't be caught out. We are to be fully engaged in life now, in work and all so on. We're to do that. But in the midst of all this, we are to be living lives of obedient faith in the light of Christ's return, seeking first the kingdom of God. Lot was ready, his wife wasn't, she was caught out, which brings us to our final point, and it's a final don't. Don't be left behind. Verse 34, I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. This idea of being left behind um, spawned a whole series, didn't it, of best-selling novels. I think there were 16 of them that Tim LaHaye wrote, and then there were four films based on the novels and so on. Um, I haven't seen the films. I haven't uh, read the novels, so I'm not recommending them to you. Um, They're based on a view of the end times, which personally I'm not persuaded by, um, in which unbelievers are left on planet Earth in a chaotic world after believers have been taken up and raptured. And that's the sort of view that it's based on. What it does get right is that Jesus' return will bring division. It will bring separation. So as Jesus says here, some will be taken, that is taken in salvation. Others will be left in judgment. And this separation notice will be very sudden and it will divide the closest of people. 
So Jesus says, two people in a bed together, and then in an instant, one is taken, the other left. Two people at work together, and in a split second, one is taken, and the other left. Now, in terms of what this is referring to, I think this is, um, I take this to be the same as what's described in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17, which says that when Jesus returns, believers who are still alive at that time will be, it says, caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Now, you can ask questions in forum time about that if you want in terms of the exact timetable, but I take it that's what it's referring to here. Now, as we close, imagine two things. Imagine, firstly, imagine being taken yourself in salvation and realising that you can't help those who are left behind, that it's too late. Now is the time of opportunity. Now is the time for us to be sharing the good news of Jesus with our uh, friends, with our family, with our colleagues, with strangers, with as many as we can. As the 19th century bishop, J.C. Ryle, said, life is the only time for such work, and life is fast ebbing away from us all. During the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, there were local Afghans and Iraqis who worked as translators with the U.S. forces. And the U.S. Army made promises to them in return for their help as translators, but the fact is that thousands of them are still back in Iraq and in Afghanistan, and they're in grave danger because they were seen as collaborators who helped the U.S. forces. And a charity has been set up to basically get these people out and get them resettled in the United States. And the charity is called No One Left Behind. If we are Jesus' people, we should have the same determination to get people out, to get people out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's Son. Through the gospel, the same commitment that no one we know and love should be left behind when Jesus returns. So that's the first imagine. Imagine, are you being taken in salvation and realizing it's too late to help those left behind? The second thing to imagine is, imagine yourself being left behind and realizing then it's too late to do anything about it. A Christian singer called Larry Norman some years ago, had a song called, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. Part of it says this, a man and wife asleep in bed. She hears a noise and turns her head. He's gone. I wish we'd all been ready. Two men walking up a hill, one disappears and one, one's left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. When that day comes, there won't be time to change your mind then. But there is time now. There is time now. And it's important that we do, because the day when Jesus returns will bring judgment on those who are not trusting in him. And that, I think, is probably the point of the final uh, rather cryptic verse, verse 37, which says, They said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Why do vultures gather? We don't have in this country, but you've seen it on films. Vultures gather, they circle where there are dead bodies. The image of vultures here, it speaks of the finality of God's judgment. 
And Christ's return will be a grim business. And so we need to make sure that we are those who will be ready. Those who put our trust in Christ the King, who through him enter God's eternal kingdom, and who are living kingdom lives of obedient faith when the Son returns.